Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, that is JB3. And I'm always surprised by how there is overlap between podcast episodes and things that are happening in my life personally. And it's, it's just interesting because the, the timeliness of these conversations when they were actually recorded, um, you know, last year, I'm predicting or at least not even considering when they would be released. And so it, it's just always peculiar how things line up. And the way that I'm referencing it in this particular episode is we are preparing to move. And moving, as you know, is one of the most stressful um, things that you could possibly do. I think I should also add that we're also expecting a child. So you add that in there, too. And then you got to just maintain everything else. And so there's just a lot of factors that go into moving that add additional stress. And now stress isn't the, the focus of today's episode, but we're digging into some of the experience that marginalized communities encounter when it comes to place and being displaced. And so thinking about the the resources necessary to move, thinking of the, the financial bandwidth, you know, I'm, I'm privileged in the way that I, I have employment that allows me to take time off and I'm still paid. And these are all things that I don't take for granted, but that is not an opportunity for, for many folks. That's not a realization. And so in talking today, as we talk about the ways that communities are designed, I want you all to consider and think about all of those factors. And so when we think about when communities have access to things, how that shapes one's experience. And so, for example, I'm, I'm wrapping up a report right now around the social determinants of health in a particular region within the state of Michigan. And one of the things that I, I called out in there was just this interconnectedness between the social determinants and how we can't even measure those impacts, but we realize when there are deficits in the structure, then it's just a, a building block that collapses. And so going back to this notion of place and design, if you don't have access to recreation, if you don't have access to quality schools or reliable transportation or employment opportunities, if those things are not designed intentionally within a neighborhood, downstream, you experience health outcomes that will reflect that. And so I'm, I'm grateful today to talk to a, a colleague, uh, Desiree Powell, who I know is doing great work down in Texas and, and has started to branch out even further with some of the work that she does around the Black Urban Planner Collective and just being able to root um, the planning process in a way that one is anti-racist, but two really flips the model of planning on its head and saying, okay, we're not going to design something internally and then push it out. We're going to design something collectively, see how things go and continually check in with community to say, hey, this is exactly what we need or no, we need to consider additional resources. And so just grateful for the conversation that you're all about to hear. I'm going to pause for now and I'll catch you at the end of the episode just with some reflections and some things to expect going forward. Desiree, love to introduce you to the Equity Matters listeners. 
thank you. I'm excited to be here. Very, very, very stoked, very stoked to be here. Um, I'm from Arlington, Texas, uh, which is like a, a mid-sized suburb about 20 minutes away from Dallas. Um, been here pretty much all my life. I have roots in Louisiana, um, in northern Louisiana, and a lot of that has played a role into the person I've become and the planner and designer I've become. So very, very much southern to the T. So when you say northern Louisiana, what parts are we talking? Lake Providence. It's the closest big town and a big city is Monroe. So it's about an hour away from Monroe. Um, okay. Very rural, maybe four or five hundred people max. <laughs> <laughs> now, my wife's got family down there and um, like Alexandria, Shreveport area. So I know that's, that's south, south. So yeah, we south, south for sure. Yeah. All right. So D, I'm glad I could get you on here. One shout out to my man, Jermaine Ruffin, for, for connecting us. Even if he didn't do it directly, I think indirectly the, the relationship was facilitated through him. So shout out to him and the Street Surf Planning. And let's talk about the problem here. So what exactly is planning and design from, from your standpoint? Uh, to me, when I break it down to people, it's design the way communities are built, the way they operate, the way they function, the way they run. Um, the design aspect has always kind of been pushed to architecture in the sense of they'll do the dirty work, the planners just do the policy and the implementation, so to speak. And so how does that come to be? I mean, what kind of decisions have to take place to, to design or build a community? You would think that it would be in the hands of the people who get to, you know, directly benefit from those designs and those places and those policies, but it really is very, very top down. Um, an organization, usually a, usually a public entity or a federal entity decides what's best. They go through that, you know, ring around the rosy for X amount of months, sometimes X amount of years, and then they dish it to the neighborhood or that community uh, as the design part. So that's when they see the pictures, the renderings, and it's kind of like, we want to have your input, but it doesn't really matter because we've already got our mind made up. And the next thing you know, you got a, a shopping center or a strip mall, like on the backside of your, of, your, of your house. And, you know, as a, as a, as a community member, you think that it's going to take a while, but they don't ever really know that they've been, that organization has been putting in the work for, for months and years at a time. They just told you so they could, uh, you know, check your box. So let's get a little detail, right? So how have our environments been designed? Oh, <laughs> easily for the, for the growth of one particular race over another. Um, you can see the stratification in almost every major U.S. city, even rural, I mean, rural towns, rural towns that are left out. The one I just mentioned that my parents are from, um, they're so disconnected from a city that, you know, they don't have department, finance, public works, courts. It's a mayor, alderman, which is their form of council members, and that's it. Um, to me, that's a direct result of planning and design. Those, those, those towns were designed to be on the outskirts, to never really have access to resources. Um, you do have towns that are, you know, that are of, that don't have people of color in them, but they, they chose to, as they do, try to do in Texas, they chose to secede and break off and try to do their own thing. Um, most of our communities today, you're in New York, New Orleans, you know, Harlem, Dallas, Houston, I mean, they were designed for one group to succeed while the other just kind of penny pinched. 
So when you say they were designed for one group to succeed, I, I know we're, we're talking about the white majority for the most part, but tell us a little bit about those elements that created opportunity for some and neglect for others. Infrastructure. Infrastructure was big. Or infrastructure is big. Um, transit. A lot of people, at least from the Texas side, everybody talks about 35. 35 is probably the bane of every, every Texan's existence because they've been working on 35 probably for 35 years or more. Um, and you can tell the parts of 35 that have, you know, they've, they've been finished, they look good, they're in your predominantly white neighborhoods, they lead into your predominantly white cities. Um, if you go to a more predominantly black or brown community, 35 is this pillars up, look like they just left and forgot when I'm to the next project. So when I say design, as people of color migrate to Texas, particularly, um, you may have had access to a vehicle and you may not have, most didn't, but when they bisected most of the black communities here, with the highway, it cut off people to have access. It made getting to public transit harder, made it more difficult, made it more challenging. And that was harder to get to jobs, to get to resources, to get to schools. Whereas on the other side of 35, your predominantly white neighborhoods were growing in these little, little, you know, almost like little bubbles, your, your Highland Parks, your Preston Hollows, those places are predominantly white, very wealthy, and they have access. They, they kind of built their own little universe. It's like that movie Pleasantville where it's like everybody is the same. Every block is the same. Every house is the same. <laughs> and having access to that infrastructure made all the difference. I mean, it sounds wild, but as a, as a black kid, if you lived in, you know, in, in a predominantly black neighborhood or neighborhood of color, you know, that may have been two or three bus rides getting to your school, which may not even been the best school. It was just the closest school. Um, so I definitely think by design, infrastructure played a big role into who had access and who didn't. And just because you mentioned it, I'm curious, did you realize this like as a child? Because I, I think on a previous episode, I talked about my experience growing up in Detroit and my first real understanding of the suburbs. And because there was literally one road that divided the east side of Detroit from Gross Point. And what I saw on the Gross Point side were like these huge houses, like grass cut, Mustang, Corvette, Viper, all in the same driveway. And then on my side, it was like potholes, missing home, all the things that you could obviously tell were signs of neglect. But did you, were you able to see that? I think I did. So, I mean, I'm from Arlington, but I grew up in Fort Worth, which is a, another mid-sized city here. Um, but I grew up playing on my basketball there. I went to school over there, predominantly black area that I did everything in. So when we, you know, moved to Arlington, even when we first moved here, my parents first moved here, it was on the east side of Arlington. So it was kind of like how you described your neighborhood. It was, you know, we lived in a duplex. Everybody was connected to each other. Our roads in the neighborhood wasn't the best. You know, we had this little cul-de-sac that we played in. You didn't really like know what sidewalks were. You didn't even think that you was missing it. When we moved to the Southwest side, I saw, park across the street that you could possibly walk to. I mean, it's a little bit of a walk, but in my other, in my other neighborhood, the park was the, the school's playground. <laughs> there was no actual park. <laughs> we just had to go to the school's playground. Um, like you said, I saw people with cars in the driveway, with garages, and then that sounds so crazy, but when you live in the duplex, everybody just pulled up in the front. We didn't have a garage. We didn't have, you know, a lawn, really. Like it wasn't anything that needed to be manicured. We came over here, people had lawns. They had signs in their yard flag pose and it was just like it was almost like out of place I didn't I didn't really understand how different that was and what it looked like 
And it's the same way when I would go back home to my parents' hometown. Um, after you get, once you get on 67 and you get down, you know, really into the country, it's one little highway that takes you all the way there. And you see missing houses, abandoned houses, houses that have been, that were burnt down and they're just sitting there like the shell of the house. You see the difference and it sounds crazy, but it's like white side and black side. If you go on the other side of the train tracks, it's like the sun comes out. It's out of all the time over there. It never rains. <laughs> uh, it's, it's big houses, you know, what you see in movies like plantation style. Houses. They're huge, all this land. You know, it's, it's day and night. So I think I saw it as a kid and I always wondered like, why did it operate like that? Especially in Louisiana where it's still, you still very much feel like blacks have these, these things and then these are, these are for whites. You know, my first time being in a two-story house when we moved over here was like, whoa, you have stairs inside your house? That's wild. <laughs> At that point, everybody I knew lived in a similar house, you know, like a duplex like me or they lived in apartments, which was on the outside of your house. So the first time I, you know, went to someone's house and they had stairs, I was like, that's, they're in your house? That, that, that's, that's not a thing. <laughs> so I think I noticed it as a kid, but I saw it more from a, a sports perspective, from the, the teams that had really nice jerseys, bags, everything was embroidered. And, you know, we we had matching jerseys, but that was about it. We all had different bags, different shoes, mismatch. You know what I'm saying? We were good, but we we didn't look good. And I think that's when it started to dawn on me like, dang, I think. I think money makes a big difference in how you how you have access to certain things. So I think I definitely picked up on it in different parts of my life. Could you speak to how I know like we could talk about the color, was it the color of law? Yeah. We could talk about, you know, the historical pieces, but when we talk about residential racist racial segregation, how is that upheld? Like it, it still exists today. What's holding that in place? Oh, a thousand percent white fear. Um, as soon as um, the majority group, which is predominantly white people, when they feel like people of color, particularly black people, have access to the same type of wealth, the same type of resources, housing. Um, I think you and I can both say that status is something that um, the majority group they 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 you know they 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 hinge on to that, and that's where you see that in a lot of still racial set residential segregation. What they talked about in color of law, you know, like you said, it takes you back towards the history part. But the reason why that's still in place is you still have realtors that, if your realtor is white, they still treat you like you tell them exactly what you want to look at, and they still take you to the complete opposite. It's like, was I not clear when I filled it out? Was there something that you didn't understand? <laughs> and you know, for for people of color, particularly like myself and some of my friends, I don't have any kids. You know what I'm saying? I'm not looking for a yard. I'm not looking for amenities like that for me it's more like I'm looking for a single person's amenities maybe thing possibly a loft a condo not necessarily a single family home but you assume that every black person wants to be surrounded by nightlife and sports I mean I do like those things but at the same time <laughs> the next person may not the next person may not even care one lick about sports or the nightlife but they still want to have a nice house to reflect the work that they've done in whatever industry they're in I think a lot of that, you know, it's, in, it's ingrained in people's minds. It doesn't change, you know what I'm saying? Like when people, like they can be taught, but can you though? Like if you come from a line, a lineage of, okay, they are less than, they're, they're second, they're, they're second rate, you know, they're three-fifths of a person. When it comes down to housing, you know, it's, it's, it's a question that we can always ask. Why is it so hard? 
for a black person to secure loans and financing for a house. And it seems like for a white person, it's, we'll take your word for it. We may have the same job. We may have a better job, better job, better credit, everything. But it still put you in a neighborhood that they, they assume that you want to be in, whether that is a predominantly black low income neighborhood or, you know, right below middle, middle class. It's like a lot of that mentality is still ingrained in realtors' mind states, in developers' mind states. They think that if you cluster a whole bunch of apartments, call them affordable housing, that's what black people want. They want to be surrounded by things that you see on TV. Most white people are still living in a time where New Jack City still applies to every black neighborhood. And that's not the case at all. You know, like nobody wants to live around crime. Nobody wants to be in poverty, but there are there are people that they didn't have a choice. But now as a, a young black person, um, you do, you know what I'm saying? So you can't, you can't automatically assume that every black person wants to live in the city, wants to live in the suburbs. It can be flipped. And that can change as you grow in life. You grow from being a single person to now married now with kids. Maybe you do want to be in the suburbs to have that yard and those amenities. But it seems like no matter what price point you're looking at, no matter what, you know, what job you have, if your realtor is white, it's like they put you in the mind state of, oh, you want to be around other black people, huh? So let me just stick you over there. Like, well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I want a brand new build and I want to be just away from everybody. So I think a lot of that plays a big role into you know, residential segregation still today, people try to downplay it. I mean, of course, a big part of it is banking and, you know, federal hand in that for sure. But on, on, on the on the local level, like in the streets, I can tell you, I can probably count on my hand how many relatives that are white that don't take, don't take forever to get back to you. Don't tell you, don't take, tell you things that, you know, unnecessary barrier, unnecessary barrier. It's like, you're supposed to be helping me, not like discouraging me. I think a lot of that is indoctrinated in their mind. And until you can't, you can't, to me, you can't really change that. That's why you see so many black people getting a realtor's license. Um, and it, you feel more comfortable dealing with somebody black because A, like, ideally they're gonna help you get from point A to point B. And B, they've seen, you know, different sides of the city, different, different parts of the Metroplex. So it's like, okay, if you say you wanna live in XYZ city, and it's not a ton of black people, that's cool. Or you wanna live in ABC city and it is a ton of black people, that's cool too. I'm gonna try to give you the best bang for your buck based on what you can afford. I try not to get too personal on the podcast, but you are speaking to like my entire life experience, right? So <laughs> started off singles, started off in an apartment, didn't really care where I lived. I just needed to be close to campus, got married. Now I needed a bigger apartment close to my job, had to end up moving out of the city for that. Got married, moved back into the city because I wanted the kids to be able to go to a good school. Now I'm like, oh, now I gotta go to the suburbs. And then my experience is completely different because the first home we bought, um, white realtor, mixed feelings. Now I have a black realtor, much better feelings because we have completely different conversations. And it's just like, hey, I can't live in the sticks. Like, I don't care if it's a six bedroom, <laughs> like. I can't live out there and you know why. Exactly. For my public health listeners, right? Do you mind just breaking down the relationship between planning, design and health or health outcomes? For sure. Um, to me, so like my, I guess my area in planning is more so place, places primarily outside, open space, park space, public space. Um, I think there's a direct correlation and for planners, 
to ever say it's not is, you know, is asinine, really. The way that the way that you interact with a space has a you know a direct effect on your on your health, your public health and your mental health. And you see that in planning, planning of black communities, everything's clustered, it's like on top of each other. There's no, there's no places for you to really experience space. Um, I didn't grow up in a place where you, you know, you hung out like New York style, you hung out on the porch. Um, I was fortunate when we moved to the suburb that we did have outside, but it was still different than my other friends that still lived on the other side of town. You know what I'm saying? Like they didn't have that access and it was very much so once they came home from school, that was it. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's nothing else to do. There's nowhere else to go. So as you grow up in those, those types of environment, it has, it's almost like it traumatizes you in a way. It traumatizes your, you know, your public mind state and then your mental health in the sense of you've never been in a space where you weren't harassed. You weren't, you didn't feel like you were being followed. You didn't feel like, you know, people were sitting outside looking at you, looking, you know, you didn't feel like you had to, every move you made had to be a good move or else somebody may, may try to call the police or may just look at you funny. Um, I think a lot of that has been done on, on purpose, intentionally through design. You know, the lack of sidewalks, the lack of space on sidewalks, the lack of easy access to parks in predominantly black communities has a direct effect on their public health. Um, when kids can't go outside and feel safe, I mean, even when teenagers can't go outside, even any age group cannot go outside and just walk from one block to the next without any type of, you know, whether it be violence, whether it be gang related, whether it just be like car related, that that plays a that plays a, a huge impact on how you grow up as a person. Um, you don't know how to interact with space. You don't know what it's like to have a space that you can call your own because for the most part, you didn't have one. And planning did that in a strategic way to where if you had access to a space, it's because you knew somebody that knew somebody or it was on the other side of town. So you had to travel by bus, by foot, by car to get there. There was no direct way for you to access it. And people think you, you drop a basketball court in a black community, you should be fine. Well, not really, because you've caged it up. So that already puts you in a mentality of you boxed in, um, you have it locked, it's ran by someone else. So you don't have access to it all the time. And then sometimes maybe in the summer, it's not locked. And I mean, a lot of people can probably say, you know, they had their first fight on a basketball court, on a playground or whatever. But to be able to say like, I felt safe in that space and it was right across the street from my, even from my neighborhood. Not too many people can say that. Not too many people can say, I experienced that and it wasn't seven blocks away or it wasn't on another city. And I mean, that could, that could also be a stress to say, okay, bro, I had a neighborhood park, which is fine. But did, you, did everything in the park work? Did everything in the park seem like it was safe for you to sit on? If this bar is hanging off the monkey bars and you have to try to skip a few to get to the next one, it's not accessible. It's not painting a good picture for you. So as you become an adult, of course, sometimes it can jade you into where you want to live, especially if you have kids. Sometimes it can jade you as far as how you how you perceive these different communities, how you perceive the space. And I think for me, a big part of that with planning and design is always making sure that it's accessible to people that obviously should have the right to it. If you drop some type of new great project in a neighborhood is predominantly black. It has an open space, you know, piece to it, but you have to have a cue card to swipe into it and all this other stuff. But it's for the community. But how? If they don't have a key card, they don't have a swipe card, it's still the same aspect of you're on the outside looking in for something that was supposed to be accessible for everybody. So I definitely think 
the way that planning has put black communities and communities of color, you know, on top of each other. Like it's okay if it's, you know, it's 10 of y'all in one, one two bedroom apartment or one bedroom apartment. You never have that, you never have that connection to yourself. You know what I'm saying? You never really get a chance to take care of yourself or be in your own space mentally or as you said, as it relates to public health. It's always just like you deal with it because you have to. That's your environment. That's how you know. You don't ever question why. It's just like, well, everybody else I know lives like this. It must be the way they're supposed to be. I think I'm going to switch up the way I do my presentations around equity and equality now and use monkey bars as an example. <laughs> I'll call it the depile method, but oh, I appreciate it's, it. it's uh, some interesting parallels there. Another thing that really stands out to me is even in like the COVID-19 experience and part of the reason why we say communities of color are more likely to be impacted goes back to the design of our communities, right? Like if you actually have no place to go, like there, there's no open space, you have multi-generational housing, you have people clustered in one community, it all goes back to the initial design of the community. It's, it's not just because it's, you know, you're black, obviously, it is actually racism that is centered people in these places where they're at greater risk. And I don't think people talked about that as much as they should have. I agree. That's a soapbox for another day. <laughs> you're right, you're right. So let's talk about some of the things that, you know, folks like yourself are doing in planning spaces to overturn what we're seeing in poor, racist design. And so what does anti-racist planning look like? Or what is inclusionary zoning? These are some of the words that I've seen like in the in the discourse when it comes to your work. Um, and hopefully they're not just buzzwords because that's um, also a pet peeve. For sure. I think inclusion and equity have been the, key, the top points of any any uh, any keynote, any project that people have talk, talked about since, you know, summer of 2020 to now and probably beyond now um there is power in words and power you know power of the tongue but i think a lot of people think inclusion and they think well we're talking about inclusionary zoning let's let's uh, let's allow single family and commercial next to each other it's not really inclusionary it's kind of like common sense you need access to stores in a neighborhood um you've probably seen a lot of the, the discourse on twitter about you know the removal of single family zoning because again it puts in ham it puts it harms people in a sense of not allowing multifamily zoning. Um, there is this ingrained idea that multifamily zoning is clearly for those people who don't have money. They live, they live and die to do to commit crimes, and that's it. Multifamily is just bad all the way around. Um, to me, when you say anti-racist planning, I think again you run into that that issue or that bigger picture realization of. <laughs> This, this industry was built on the backs of for them and not for us kind of thing. Um, and you have people like that who think like that still that are planning directors, executive directors. They branched off and done their own thing and they run it through their mission and their value. They don't just come out and say that, but you can see it in the projects that they do. To be more inclus inclusive is to really let have everybody, let everyone have a table, at, you know, a seat at the table. And when that isn't accomplished, then that's why you see so many people creating their own table, flipping over the table, or just not dealing with the table at all. You see so many people that are straying away from planning and going into public health, social work, nonprofit. You know, there are also avenues of planning, but it's not straight up public sector planning because people have seen it for what it's worth and they don't, they don't want to be a part of adding to the problem. 
They want to be a solution to the problem. The biggest thing to me for anti-racist planning, inclusionary planning, inclusionary zoning, all of that is listening. You know, for so long, predominantly white men have had the mic. They refuse to pass the mic and let somebody else have their turn. And that's where we are now. There's no more, okay, well, give me my turn. Can I say something that's more so like you have to interrupt the discourse to make, to make people uncomfortable. Nobody wants to talk about redlining beyond redlining the color of law. People only say, they only, you know, dial in on that. Although that book has so much more information than just about redlining. Nobody talks about the families that were displaced. Nobody talks about the people that regular nine to five blue collar jobs and still could not afford, wouldn't even be allowed to buy a home based on exclusionary zoning. To have that conversation is to come to terms with the reality of it. That's in our organizations, our national chapters, our local chapters, you know what I'm saying, our regional chapters. Um, and it also, you know, it causes you to have to do things like your own with other people that are like-minded. Um, but I guess to sum that up, it's, it's finding solutions, not, you know, agitating problems. You don't have to go to a community of color and tell them, okay, so y'all are this number in poverty, this number in dropout, this number in teenage pregnancy. Like, they don't have to look at stats and know. They see people around them that they went to school with, now they don't see them no more, and now much later, they see them with a baby. They, people know it, they just don't call it stats and demographics. It's, lived experiences. It's about being inclusive at every level of planning, not just when it's time to rezone, not just when it's time to do a comprehensive plan, not just when it's time to get people on board because it's election season. It's literally being involved every day all the time. You know what I'm saying? You see everybody, everybody's talking about zoning and economic development, revitalization, selection time, of course. Those are buzzwords for people to get you out and get you intrigued into what their platform is. But to be inclusive, to be inclusive it's to be about it every day, 24-7. Like, the plight of Black people, the struggles of Black people don't stop when election season is over. Um, it has to be the mentality that we have to do this every day. And some people are like, man, it's tiring. Well, obviously, I mean, imagine being Black on this side. Like, it's literally a constant fight having to tell people why, why this doesn't make sense. Not, It's not about the dollars, it's about the common sense. You know what I'm saying? It's about if you remove people, if you displace people and you put in a nice, you know, multifamily unit, condos and all the things, dog, all the things that people think are, you know, great assets to a great community, who has access to them? Even me as a black person that works a decent job, our whole profession is built on the, you know, the advancement of white convenience. It, it's a point now where they have to take a back seat. And it sounds bad in a way, but it's like you, you cannot keep putting, you know, the savior mentality into the hands of white planning directors or white planning executives, whatever the case may be. It has to be inclusive every day, all day, around the clock. And that's where I think a lot of the disconnect is. Sometimes people talk about it a lot and they want to do it. They're like, well, how do I get involved? How do I not be like my other white friends or other white planners? You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't go looking for black people to have that conversation with. You don't, you know, make, you don't create articles and publications and content off of their struggles. You go there, you go to those communities, you experience it. You have to be uncomfortable. And I think that's where a lot of it is. A lot of white planners and even white people don't wanna be uncomfortable because it's a small inconvenience for them to have to realize like, wow, that's really us. Like we really did that and still currently are. 
And that's what I've seen a lot, even from last year to now, you'll ruffle feathers, but you'll also get people, okay, well, we did that one time, let's not do it two times in a year. They may not let us come to X, Y, and Z conference or X, Y, and Z, and that's fine. We only go to conferences for free stuff anyways. That's literally the only reason that we go and to get away from work. But until white planners and even black planners who are older, who are set in a way, who have had to pretty much code switch their entire career, it has to come to a point where you are ready to have that uncomfortable conversation. You are, you, you have to be okay. You're gonna sit here and listen to every single thing that this community has endured at the hand of this planning department and other and other state and federal entities. We're not there yet. We're getting there in different pieces and portions. Uh, it's like a thousand piece puzzle and we got like six pieces and we lost a box. That's where we are right now. We don't have a we don't have a clear idea of where to, where they where to go and I say we I mean non persons of color that persons of color that are in planning um, that's definitely more so from a white planner's perspective of less asking what I can do and more finding solutions on your own you know what I'm saying we all had to be educated on white planning and white planning you know theories and practices why can't you do the same for black planners we have to, you have to scrounge the internet to find black planners. That in itself speaks volumes of who, who this who this profession feels like is worthy of being remembered, and who they feel like, ah, eh, well, will it take away from somebody else who they were fighting against directly? So, long story short, <laughs> inclusionary zoning, inclusionary planning is possible, is doable. Even anti-racist planning is doable, but it's written in our policies, it's written in our documents, it's written in our implementation. Until you get out people out of the mindset of well, we're writing it for the bigger masses. It's okay to write plans just for communities of color, just for black, just for Hispanic people, because they need that. You have to create and implement and design things people can use. There's no point to have a resource center in a primarily Hispanic community and not have access to ESL. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's no point. There's no point to have those resources if, they, if you don't have them in English and Spanish and Vietnamese and sign language you know it's you just can't say okay we built this resource center it's great it has all these things but we don't have anybody we don't have anything that translating we don't have anything like that we don't have anything that ties directly to that community that's where we can talk all day but you have to start pushing on people who write the policies whether that be public sector or private sector we're writing racism into our policies racism has been written into our policies which is why we're here right now and once you take out all of the fluff, you'll see it'll just sometimes it'll come out so clear of okay, if they make less than this, if they can't afford one acre, then they gotta go over there. And if they can't do one acre and then okay, then they can come over here. We're gonna write it based off of that. Sometimes it's as clear as that. Once we get into that that mentality of okay, it's our policies. How can we change the, the hands of the people who are writing our policies? Every public sector planning planner, every private sector, private sector planner has access to that because both sides deal with it. It's a matter of how far are you gonna push it? How far are you gonna push the, push, push the notion of racism and planning is no longer the elephant in the room. It's, it's the reality of our profession. Tell us about Black Spaces. You know that's, that's your pet project, that's your baby. Let us know what it is and how did you bring that vision to life? Um, so it is urban design, urban planning and urban design firm. I think I'm going to call it a group firm sounds so, I don't know. 
Self-term? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Um, it's really pretty much um, placemaking, so creating and activating spaces and communities of color that can be accessible and sustainable um, that a community can take on by themselves and it grows as the community grows. It grows with the community, it goes with their needs, um, as well as zoning as a public sector planner. That's a big part of you know my day-to-day -day job is answering and fielding phone calls for what can I do, what can I do? Um, primarily people of color don't know before they get to that. So they spend, they bought, they buy the land or they buy the building and then they can't do it because of the zone and they're stuck with it. And it's, I will say it's a, it's a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty depressing conversation to have with people that have sunk their life savings into a piece of property that they can't use for what they want, um, only to sit on it and keep having to pay property taxes. So the other aspect of black spaces is educating people especially people of color on zoning before they buy property, before they develop the research, the backhand sides of it, the things that you'll have, the thing, the challenges that they'll have when they do go to public hearing, city council, um, and really being able to provide that access to those resources. I mean, they're public, they're free, but most people, most people of color don't come to city hall just because they don't come to city hall because they want to. It's making that, that dialogue a lot easier and a lot more comfortable. Um, and to be honest, <laughs> it started out last year as a quarantine project. I was just blogging. I haven't wanted to do it for a long time when I got out of school, uh, when I got out of graduate school. I didn't see a lot of planners that looked like me. And I was super discouraged growing, going into the field, like, is this what it's going to be like all the time? Um, and I was fortunate enough to, my first planning job out of school wasn't a predominantly Black city, um, but I saw some of the downsides of being in a predominantly black city, um, it's not always, you know, <laughs> unicorn stickers and ponies, even if everyone around you looks like you. Um, and at the time I was like, well, maybe I want to write something, I want to do something that that speaks directly to black planners. And everyone around me at the time was like, well, you don't want to leave out X, Y, and Z. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to leave people out. And I thought, well, why not? Everything else is us being left out. I don't understand why it would be bad to have something dedicated to us. Um, and that's pretty much how it started. I, I started as a block space, like I said, just, you know, some of my frustrations with planning, some of my frustrations with myself in planning and kind of like losing my way. And I never really intended on it becoming anything that it has beyond just like, um, a blog space, really. The firm part, I wanted it to grow as time grew along with it, and it it kind of took on, took on a mind of its own. And now I think it's created this space for not only Black people, but other planners of color. That is a safe space, and we have Black Planner Collective calls. Um, it allows so many people to see so many faces that look like this um, in this field. You hear their struggles, you hear their triumphs, you, you understand that you're in a space now that you don't have to code switch. You don't have to just talk about, you know, the things that your white coworkers talk about at work. You don't have to be the oddball out because you're talking about social justice and equity. Um, so I'm extremely proud of the way that it's grown and the people that have fed back into it and allowed me to make mistakes and be transparent and, you know, just be fluid with it. So it really started off as a, as a quarantine project. Um, and here we are a year later. These quarantine projects, something else, because that's what the podcast is. 
I'm saying. Like, I just need somewhere to talk about things that no one else is talking about. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so tell us a little bit more about some of the events and programs that you've been working on. I did see the MLK Food Park just wrapped up. Yeah. Tell us about that and some of the other things you got in the pipeline. Um, so that was my biggest project to date. And that was, man, it was it was challenging, but it was by far the most fulfilling thing I've done in, in this space since I've been in planning, quote unquote. And that project really stemmed from um, addressing food policy in the city of Dallas, like mobile food. Um, you and I both know that we... I'm not afraid to say that I've bought multiple plates out of somebody's trunk or off the side of the road because when it's fire, it's fire. But I'm also, <laughs> I know how hard it is to go through the, you know, the technical processes of getting started and whether that be mobile or brick and mortar for food, um, a lot of black people struggle and they fail, not because they don't, their business model isn't good or they don't have a business model. They they don't have any knowledge. They don't have any, you know, sense of what the city's expecting. And it's always one thing after the other. And everything that they want, it has a fee to it. And they kind of get, they're in the red before they can even open their doors. So a part of the park was addressing the way mobile food vending looks. You know, COVID changed a lot of that. Food is never going to look the same. Restaurants are never going to look the same. And pointing that out to the city of, okay, a lot of these people are trying to do right. They don't have access to the information. They don't have access to even get in touch with somebody at City Hall. And even the financial barriers are just, I mean, for a small business, you're asking a lot. Um, and then the other part of it was space activation. The particular corner that we were on, um, that lot had seen better days. And now, it, well, before the park had become a haven for drug trafficking, prostitution, um, pr probably any, any crime you can think of, I think that lot has seen it. Um, and it is a, it's, it's a byproduct of, you know, a slumlord that owns apartments to the east and to the west, not taking care of it, not just not caring. And that's what it turned into. Um, for so long, actually throughout the whole project, there were so many people <laughs> in and out of the neighborhood that said it wouldn't work. Nobody would come to South Dallas for a food park. Nobody would feel safe. Nobody would waste their time coming out there. Like, why would they? It's been forgotten about, leave it alone. Um, I think that was the biggest satisfaction for me, the fact to have, you know, not only a thousand or two thousand people come out every weekend, but to see the amount of people that moved out and came back and was like, man, I never would have thought this corner would be anything than what it had always been, which was just a hangout spot for every type of illegal activity. To see the faces of people that have lived, that live in that community, to interact with people, I mean, they do have a very large homeless population. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not in any way a perception or what the community looks like. A lot of those people talked to, had conversations with, you know, their life story. A lot of them just fell on hard times. Doesn't make them a bad person. Just means they made mistakes like the rest of us. They just couldn't bounce back or they're still having a hard time bouncing back. A lot of them face addiction. A lot of them even said, I had the house, the kids, everything. And I had a good job that helped me fund my addiction. But it got to the point that my addiction was so, had become so much bigger than me that None of that stuff mattered. You know, I dedicated my life to feeding my addiction. For the first time, for most of them, it was like nobody ever comes down here and talks to us. The police patrol, they harass us, and that's it. Um, we'll see the property owner every now and again, but nobody just comes and talks to us. They come in, they move us off the property or any other property, and they do what they got to do and they leave. Um, I think creating those connections, those conversations, those relationships, 
was the biggest win for me um, because for the first time in a long time, those that community felt like people cared. People talked to them not as a homeless person, just as somebody who had had had, a, had hit a snag in life. And it could be any any time that happens. I always think like it could be me. I've made my fair share of mistakes financially in school, personal life. I've just been fortunate that I that I have people around me that have been able to pick me back up and me been able to pick myself back up. But I would never want society to like cast me out as you know. All right, you made one bad mistake. This is this you deserve this basically. Um, so that project did so many things and so many levels. Um, it it showed a lot about what space can do, and what it really and also showed what disinvestment can do um, when property is landlocked by people who are non-black. It shows where their intentions are. It shows who they want to be there, and it shows that. Unfortunately, people do put a price on bodies. They put a price on experiences. And that opened up a bigger can of worms of this lot was never, you know, a bad place to be. The lack of care for it, the lack of attention to it, the lack of them just doing what a property owner should do is the reason that it got into this condition. Um, so the park was phenomenal. Uh, definitely sad to see it end, but excited for all the things that it brought, good and bad, and all the things that it showed that community that they've all, I mean, they all, they said they always knew there was more that could be done here. Nobody just took a chance on it. Not even financially, just listening. And that is probably the most important thing that I learned, listening to them. So they have buying power. They have people in places to do things. Nobody just listens. They keep getting force-fed things that they don't need. Um, having access to resources that you can't, utilize it's like giving somebody if i'm bad at money right now if i get a million dollars i'm still gonna be bad at money because i don't know how to manage it i'm still gonna blow through it as if it was a thousand dollars or a hundred dollars um so i definitely enjoyed having the part put it together creating it interacting with the community and just being in the community uh for the last two and a half months um up next is doing more work like that honestly create more projects like that. It's happening with people who are doing it in other cities and other regions, um, just to see what they've done, their struggles, their challenges, of course, primarily communities of color. Um, and for that, for the particular community in South Dallas, now it's like, okay, the park was, was a success. How do you create permanency? How do you create access to space all the time? How do you create access to food? healthy food, any food that they don't have right now. Um, so nothing in the pipeline as of today, <laughs> honestly, because I had turned off my emails today because I was just like dead tired. So I didn't want anybody to talk to me about anything work related. <laughs> so I have no idea what's been going on, um, but really doing more work like this and taking planning out of, out of the bureaucracy of it. Um, I know public sector pays the bills, but just kind of getting it out of the mud, this kind of planning. It pays the bills, but it also, it creates things that money can't buy. Shaking my head. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying. <laughs> um, I give a presentation on community engagement and I try to make sure that I drive home something that you mentioned as well with listening. 
the secret to community engagement, like good community engagement is authenticity, right? Like you, you have to have a relationship, even if you, maybe not even you specifically, but your organization has messed up in the past. You have to own that. Like coming from state government where I'm at, I'm like, I know the things that my public sector organization has done. And I try to put that out up front and say, I'm not them, right? Like you see me, I'm gonna apologize for them even though I shouldn't have to, but the things that we're gonna do is rooted in authenticity and the relationship that we're gonna build so that we can produce the outcomes that you need. Cause I'm not just here to be like, I mean, I'm a servant, I'm a public servant. Like my, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like y'all, y'all taxes paid my salary. So it's like, let's, let's be authentic, let's be intentional and let's be deliberate as opposed to just checking the box because checking the box is what puts us in these situations in the first place. For sure. D, it's been great catching up. No, How do people keep up with you keep up with black spaces and when they need that consulting dollar, how do they hit you up? <laughs> um, so I'm on Instagram, probably the heaviest. Um, my at is at B-T-H-E-D-E-E underscore P. Um, I'm also on Twitter at black spaces, B-L-C-K-S-P-C-E-S. Um, and then the website, blackspaces.com, um, B-L-C-K-S-P-C-E-S is where anything, anything that I'm doing, when I remember to update the website, uh, <laughs> will be there. Um, anytime we have Black Planet Collective calls, the information will be there. If you ever want to like hop in on one of those, um, just like a Zoom call. And anytime I am somewhere, I'll usually, if I don't put it on the website, I'll usually just put it on Twitter or I'll put it on my Instagram. And for the consultant bag, it's also on Black Spaces. Um, my email is on there too, um, Desiree at blackspaces.com. Um, the beauty of this is can be picky with who you work who I work with and who I don't like you just talked about everything that you just said is 100% of my, my like my mind state when people reach out to me whether it be for work whether it be for an interview whether whether it be for my favorite thing pick your brain you know <laughs> it, it, it's authentic um so anytime anywhere that you're looking for something is gonna be blackspaces.com or on my Instagram hey y'all better hit up black spaces <laughs> y'all know y'all need it Love it. Appreciate that. All right, D, you take it easy. You enjoy this break because I know you you just got finished off a heavy hustle. You For know, sure. Spend I some time. It. Rest is part of the, the process. So you take Thank care you. of yourself and we'll catch up. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Take it easy. Absolutely. Big shout out to the homie D Powell for joining us on the podcast. Also, another shout out to Jermaine Ruffin, aka the host of The Streets Are Planning for connecting us. And you know, one of the things that I immediately take away from this episode is this notion of choice and intentionality. And so when we make decisions around policy, it is a choice. And when we choose to create policies that unfortunately further marginalize groups, that, that again is a choice. And if we're intentional about systems change, if we're intentional about equity then the choices that we make look very different. And so what D raised for me was we have a, a say in the ways that we as decision makers make policy. Now, it isn't always the most popular opinion. Take it from a bureaucrat who knows. But when you have to do what's right, you have to do what's right. And so thanks again. 
uh, D for blessing us on the pod. A few things. Oh, before we even go too far on that, D, I know you're listening to this episode. We want to hear your podcast sometime this year. So let's let's make that happen. A few other things in the mix for Equity Matters. So I've mentioned in the past the relationship that we've built with the Cummings Graduate Institute. Um, we should be expecting our first two courses to be live the end of February. I'm, where last I saw it was going to be February 28th. So really excited to kick those off. Building out a training right now for unmasking white supremacy and racism and mental health. It's been a joy to create because it it blends things that I'm I enjoy doing so really the the history and the historical context of why this problem exists really digging into the roots of racism and why why are we here like how did this come to be because what we find in the literature and and in the experience is that like many other systems the mental health system is rooted in racist ideas that have continued and have impacted practice and therefore influenced outcomes. And one of those being just as an example, um, this notion of protest psychosis during the civil rights movement. Why wouldn't people protest being oppressed? I mean, it, it makes sense to me, but it was actually, I don't believe it found itself into a, a DSM of any sort, but it at least gained enough traction to be a part of the discourse and there there were medications put out for it and so if you're interested in learning more about that stay tuned very soon i'm I'm, i believe we said in june of this year they will be live and so really excited to bring that to you all um what else is going on with equity matters we are trucking along for for the year i'm i'm excited I'm really excited because I feel like I'm I'm ending on a high note with doing the episodes that I enjoy, right? And that's not to say that I haven't enjoyed others, but I really feel like it took a while for me to feel myself and where I felt comfortable in doing this work. And I feel like I, I hear myself differently now because I, I feel more relaxed in podcasting. And I think it, it shows up in a, a very genuine way at and I'm just excited for you all to hear that. If you're not following us on social media, make sure you do it. That's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram, at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Sign up for the listservs to stay up to date on your episodes and any other announcements that we may have. And of course, folks, you already know how I feel. Equity Matters. Equity Matters.